Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Folland, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Being Freelance. This one is going to take a load of the live Q&As that we do in the Being Freelance community and bring you some of that wisdom. So, yeah, the Being Freelance community, if you've not joined already, go to beingfreelance.com, come find us. One of the things that we do in there is get people who know stuff to come on and answer the questions that we all have. In this episode, we're going to hear from three of them. We've got Beth Gladstone, who is a freelance content marketing SEO strategist. Uh, We've got Tom Garfield. He creates websites alongside his wife, Ellie, as Brand New Notebook. But we're going to start with a previous guest of the Being Freelance podcast, Prana Malik, who is based over in India. She shared her incredible story on the podcast in 2018. If you've not heard it, go back, search for it after this. Prana is a conversion copywriter and has written for online business icons such as Pat Flynn, Vanessa Lau, Joanna Weber... Um, Amy Porterfield. She knows what she's talking about. You can find details of Beth, Tom and Prana in the show notes to this episode. Go click. As with all of our episodes, there are transcripts at beingfreelance.com. And remember, the originals of these conversations happened in the Being Freelance community. So if you enjoy this, you can watch the full video replays at beingfreelance.com slash community. Come in and find us. And if you've not joined already, we've got the catalog. We're sitting there. We've left a place for you on the sofa. What are you waiting for? <laughs> you can find all about what it is at beingfreelance.com slash community. We've moved away from Facebook and it is even better than it's ever been. Okay, let's crack on and let's start with Prana Malik. I sent an email out earlier on, but in it I listed some of the high profile clients that you work with like the likes of Pat Flynn or Amy Porterfield and such. Laura then got back to me and said, can you ask, how did you get to work with such high profile clients? Which was, I thought was an interesting question to start with. Absolutely. And the answer, (laughs) like it or not, is a little boring. There is no exciting story here. I literally pitched Pat Flynn in in Instagram DMs. So there you go. (laughs) That's that's not boring. (laughs) Because that's kind of like, how do you end up pitching? Like, had you been going back and forth, though? Had you been interacting yeah. with each other? Like, So, yes, there is, of course, the groundwork to a relationship. And there was a connection. Like, I had been on Pat's list for a while. We, for a long time, in fact, he is, was one of the first email lists we signed up to when my uncle and I started our business. We'd been on, our, on his list for a while. And then, as you do, you interact and connect with them initially I was very active on Twitter, but then Instagram came in and yeah, I was responding to stories, commenting on posts, like just genuinely very, very interested Mm. in what he had to say and all of that. And then we also met in person at different events. 2017, I did quite a few events in the US. I traveled to the US pretty much once or twice a year for different events. And I I still remember in 2017, you know, I ended up meeting him at two events. And then later on, reached out to him because I knew that he's working on launches and funnels, evergreen funnels for uh, his programs, the one to three affiliate marketing, which by the way, again, that was a course that I'd taken when it launched initially, right? So yes, there was definitely the foundation, a solid foundation of a relationship. And when I knew that he's working and I reached out to him and so I was like, okay, I'd love to 
be involved with the team and help with sales copy and with this you know the launch strategy and all of that and he was like okay that sounds interesting let's get on a call we chatted i walked him through my process and you know how i would work with him his team and all of that what i would do it turned out to be a great experience he brought me in on another project yeah, there you are oh, i love it you see it's not a boring story there's so much to learn oh. from that <laughs> it's starting off with that genuine interaction as in a long a long tail but it wasn't forced it was just genuine tom another tom says how much should i be spending on a website wow how much should you be spending (laughs) on a car that's the question right so it depends on on what you need it to do it depends on the size it depends on all that so but we do have a little bit of a narrower audience here which is freelancers so i'm going to say that you're probably yeah one person and you are running a business that's just you yourself and i and you need to find x number of clients per month per year so if i was to build you a website and it was to be no copywriting, no branding. I'm going to assume that's already being taken care of by someone. And you needed five, six pages. There are various options. You can have a template, which is where you pick something else off the shelf and customize it for about a good good one. You can go somewhere between 1500 2000 pounds. Or you could go bespoke, and that's probably about four or 5000 pounds. So I would say if you're a new freelancer, you should consider the lower end, I would also consider your current skill set, depending on what you do. So one of the mistakes I make, uh, I see made is, let's say you're a copywriter and you're a great copywriter, but you can't design for Toffee, but you try to and you think, right, I've got great copy. So I'm going to try and build this lovely, fancy website and see, see how I get on. You are far better off playing to your strengths and building a website that is super simple, super basic, keep it clean, keep it consistent. Don't try and do anything fancy with design and colors and fonts. Just write a really great set of pages with a nice heading content a couple of buttons and that's all you need to do that is going to serve you way better than trying to go too far with whatever it is you're not skilled at um so you can build you can definitely build your websites yourself which is nominal depending on the platform that you choose but if you want a professional design don't go with someone that's charging anything less than four figures i would say maybe that's unfair to say actually it depends but Typically, I would say that's about the minimum you should you should be expecting to pay for a professional website. But it depends what they're including. Mm. What if you were, you know, like say you've done it yourself using a template on Squarespace, for example, but you thought, okay, I've got a bit of money. I don't have four figures. I don't really want to start from scratch. It's not that bad. Like, what would be a good thing to look at? Would it be, for example, photography or hiring a copywriter or hiring a... Uh, an seo or getting a logo or like what all right so let's say you had 500 pounds to spend and you need a website you've got no no other way of getting any more money than that and you've got maybe a little bit of money to spend so what i would do is i would get a squarespace website and if i'm not a copywriter myself i would get a copywriter to review and edit my writing Um, you're unlikely to get a significant amount of copy written for that money but you can certainly get someone to review and give you feedback and pointers Um, so you can get a really nice simple template again keep it simple if you're not a designer keep things consistent that's the main thing don't deviate from your standard like pick two colors pick one font and just keep everything nice and simple 
that's going to do far better than you trying to get fancy with it. So I'd choose a nice, simple Squarespace template, get that set up, pick like four key pages, home, about me, my services and contact and get um, a copywriter basically to give you some um, advice and guidance on the copy that you've written yourself, edit, feedback and then go from there because you can use that as a online business card type thing if you're doing social media for 500 quid you're going to get nothing in terms of seo don't bother with seo for anything like that it's probably not worth it i would say much better off just if you're starting from scratch get that four pager with some copywriting support and build it from there Beth's here to answer your question so this came in from claire who said are regular blogs still worth doing that is the million dollar question at the moment, actually. And I feel like this, I feel like there's a shift that's been happening for a while, which it sounds like you're aware of the fact that you're even asking this question. Um, but obviously, the big news lately, chat GTP, AI has sort of supercharged where this was already heading. So I think in, in when we think about blogs from an SEO perspective, regularly creating content isn't such a big deal because you could obviously put out 20 blog posts targeting all of your keywords um, and then let that build over time into your SEO strategy. Publishing blogs, on the other hand, regularly not for SEO. So for example, just to share thoughts, interviews, things like that, where it's not so keyword driven. That's the type of blogging that I would say, yes, is definitely still worthwhile. You're putting out regular content, you're building your brand, building your thought leadership, all of that good stuff. Um, with SEO, because of what's happening in kind of the, the AI world, which in a, we can obviously go into that very deeply, but in a nutshell, it's now very easy for anybody to put out blogs about anything written by these kind of AI tools and chatbots. And we'll see a lot of companies doing that, probably the, the bigger ones followed by the smaller companies. For that reason, I think blogs are going to be much, much more difficult to achieve um, some of these goals with. So it's going to be really difficult to build ranking because there's going to be so much more content. It's going to be really difficult to get noticed around key terms because, again, the volume of content is going to be so high. So what I my advice at the moment to businesses is great to do blogs if you're doing for, for brand, but if if you're doing it to try and rank and to try and get people to your website, you'd probably be better focusing your time I'm on your actual website and by that I mean your home page your product pages your services pages your metadata making sure that that core content on your website is really good really optimized for search really attractive to people landing on your website because it will be far easier to attract people to rank using those core pages than using blogs because the blog landscape is just going to become so competitive I realise that's quite a long answer, so I hope that makes sense. Oh my God, no, but it's a really interesting answer. Is the answer then to like create content that gets across our own personal experiences or knowledge? Like we have to think beyond just keywords when we're thinking about blogging. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there's a few different strategies you could take. So either... Um, yeah, any content that's bylined, so content that's written by you or by somebody in your company um, or by, you know, an influencer or an interview, something that's bringing something unique that can't be just created by an AI tool, that's going to be a really good type of content for blogs that will still be interesting. Um, I think niche content. So, it, so if you're just writing blogs around generic keywords in your industry 
I don't think you're you're going to see ranking now, or at least not ranking enough that is actually going to move the needle and getting people to your website. So anything vague, you know, how to start a blog, how to use this marketing tool, and anything that's very vague, and there's a lot of content already for that on the internet, I'd say it's a waste of time. If you can write something very niche, so if there's a very specific topic or product or service that you offer that no one else is really offering, and you can write a blog around that, um, you you can achieve ranking because there won't be as much content about that on the internet already. And then again, thirdly, as I said, kind of brand content where you're not really trying to rank, but you just want to have all this really rich content on your website that will help to convert people, help them to find out who you are, what you do. Those are kind of the three blog strategies that I would still consider. But but anything generic, going after generic keywords that have got really high competition, I really think your time would be best spent elsewhere. Terry's got a question. Terry says, in terms of courses, what would your approach be to launch and sell an online course without having existing audience? Brackets, I don't have an email list right now. Okay, so I'm guessing then you don't have, would you have social media? Or, because I'm, I'll just be making an assumption otherwise. Terry, do you have a following? <clears throat> do you have a, yes, I do. So he doesn't have an email Amazing. list, but he has a social media thing. Right. Perfect. So yeah, my approach would be to take some of those followers from social and bring them to your email list. You want to start bringing them to your email list. Alternatively, what you could do is if you want a quick cash infusion, you could pre-sell that course to people on social media and simultaneously get people to sign up to your email list as well. And that could, you know, you really honestly sometimes don't even need like a fancy webinar or a five-day challenge or even an ebook or something like that. You could just help people that even you sign up to my list, you'll get the first lesson of the first module for free. And boom, that is your course-specific opt-in, right? But why am I keen that you take people from social to email? Because again, social is, you know, the the cliched advice, but it is true, it is borrowed land, and you want people to be connected to you in a way that tomorrow if Twitter decides to, well, implode, <laughs> you don't lose all of those really lovely humans who've chosen to follow you. But yeah, the most efficient way would be on Twitter, tell people, hey, I'm coming up with a course that's going to help you do A, B, and C, be really specific in terms of the outcome and the pain that your program is solving like your program has to solve a, a pain area right so be specific in terms of that if you're interested let me know you can you know pre-enroll at the founders pricing off give them like a special deal and look at getting your minimum viable number of students in but at the same time also tell people if you if you like to get a sneak peek at what i'll be teaching you can get like lesson one off module one for free and here's where you're going you can just like create a simple landing page with any email software provider like literally all of them have uh, you know landing page functionalities so um, convertkit is my favorite but i believe flowdesk and mailer light and all of the others have similar functionalities yeah terry good answer right especially because terry did actually write a cheeky second question, which which was around pre-selling courses. So you touched on that without even knowing it was already on his mind. He said, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Presumably you think it's a good idea. He says, I see it recommended a lot and I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts were. So it sounds positive. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lack of email list should never hold you back from launching a course or selling, you know, a program as long as you know you have an audience somewhere and as long as you know that this is an idea that people really need. I honestly can't win more because I don't know your audience, I don't know your offer, I don't know your expertise, your background. Oh, this it's a very nuanced discussion. Yeah. But on the surface, I think if you have an audience somewhere, you can sell a program. Um, you just need to be realistic about the results. If you have, again, not all your social audience is going to be an audience of buyers. That's also true for email lists. But I, what we, I have seen historically, like email lists have more buyers than social audiences. So yeah, that's another reason to yeah. get people to sign up your list. Yeah. Terry says, thanks, Prana. And Terry, uh, I would recommend, if you haven't heard it, the John D. Saunders episode of Being Freelance, because he talks about how he did a pre-sale for his... I mean, maybe he had an email list. I can't remember. <laughs> but I remember he went into a lot of detail on me thinking, oh, I should write this down. Louise, who says, can you ask Tom if I should put my prices on my website? This is something which... I sometimes end up talking about with guests of the Being Freelance podcast. What's your take on it? So I have a general rule of thumb, um, which is if you can, you should. So if you if you have fixed prices, then then go for it. It's a great way to either sort of eliminate bad fit clients, so anyone that can't afford you, basically. Um, you should probably think about whether or not that should be a from price or a range. So if you have fixed prices, then go for it. Put the price on. If you have a range of prices or packages um, that are maybe from a certain amount then you could do that but i recently did an instagram um, carousel about this which is maybe be a little bit careful with that because sometimes when someone sees the from price and let's say it's a thousand pounds they're sort of going to psychologically hold you to that thousand pounds because that's the first price they've seen so they go oh it's a thousand pounds the from bit i don't know they kind of uh they kind of um well, oh, sorry, I'm distracted because Ellie's just asked me to make her a coffee. And... <laughs> yes, if you I don't, if you don't know, wanna... Tom and Ellie actually sit next to each other in that room. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just finishing up and then I'll make you a coffee. Where was I? I forgot. I could complete. Oh, prices, yeah. So um, <laughs> in theory, the from price might make people think that that's like the price. They're going to anchor to that price. Whereas if you say it's somewhere between a thousand and three thousand pounds and then you quote them and it's two and a half thousand pounds, they might even be pleasantly surprised and go, oh, it's not right at the top end of that range mm. that I saw. So be careful with that. Um, if what you do ranges from a sort of a very significant amount, so if it's like a thousand all the way to 10,000, for example, it might just be like totally pointless to put the price on your website because that doesn't mean anything to anyone. I don't know, £1,000, £10,000, totally different. Um, and so what you should really do is go down the route of saying, like, it's customised service. This is something that is completely bespoke to everybody that I work with. Um, it really entirely depends on you and your circumstances. The best thing for us to do would be to have a discovery call to understand more details about the project. Um, and so, yeah, I would say if you can, you should. If you can't, don't try and force it. Do you have any advice on spending regular time on your own marketing whilst also doing everything else 
Sam, that's something that I struggled with for a long time. As as a marketer, everyone else's marketing gets prioritised. So my own website for a long time was very embarrassing, even though I <laughs> created amazing websites for other people. And I think the conclusion I've come to is that um, because marketing is so broad and there's so many channels, there's so many strategies, I think it, the idea of marketing becomes overwhelming because we think, okay, we must do a podcast, we must do um, you know, an email newsletter, we must do five different social media channels. So my advice to you would be to pick one channel, ju- just one channel out of all of those, something that you can do consistently because I think consistency in marketing is, is really what makes the biggest difference. So rather than spreading yourself thinly across all of your client work and then trying to do your, your own marketing, pick one channel and and usually the channel that you can do consistently is is obviously the channel where your customers are they need to be able to see you but also it should be a channel that you enjoy really because otherwise you just won't stick to it if you're trying to force yourself to do something like LinkedIn or Instagram that you don't enjoy it's going to be really difficult and actually even doing one channel consistently I would say it is, is enough to, to build a profile to make sure that people are seeing you, seeing what you're doing. So that's personally where I would start and then you can build on from there. Melissa, she asked this question, Tom. Something that can be challenging from an SEO point of view is knowing what people are searching for when looking for our services. For example, I'm a sustainability and conservation copywriter, but that's not necessarily what people might be putting into Ecosia slash Google slash Bing when they think they need my services. Do you have any tips we can bear in mind when doing our keyword research for our websites slash blogs? Definitely. So this is this is a question basically about low volume search keywords, which means that there might not be many people searching for that thing. It might be very specific. It might be super niche. And so when you do keyword research using tools like Ahrefs or SEMrush or things like that, sometimes there'll be like no data or you won't really know exactly what it is that people are searching for because it doesn't tell you roughly how many people are typing those sorts of things in. The first thing I would say is trust your gut because if you're thinking of that, you you know, you know might be right. I mean, be careful of the kind of whole jargon thing of of is this something only people in my industry really know is a thing if we take that sustainability example i would say what are all of the different terms that people might use to describe sustainability so is it eco-friendly is it environmentally friendly is it green those sorts of keywords and ask people outside of your field for help as well what would you type in if you were looking for what i do if you were looking for someone who did sustainability copywriting so sometimes the data just isn't there because the data isn't perfect these tools that you can get to do keyword research can't tell you everything um they don't have all of the data but it doesn't mean no one's looking for them and it doesn't mean that that kind of those kind of keywords aren't being searched for um so i would say trust your gut Get lots and lots of advice from other people. So ask them what they would type in. Try and collect a little table of the kind of responses and see if there are any common themes. Um, But mostly just go to Google, search for what you think it might be, have a look at the search results. And often you'll probably see some, some competitors or similar websites that maybe use that phrase, but also some other phrases too. So it might be sustainability copywriting, eco-friendly copywriting or something like that. So look on Google itself as well. There'll be featured snippets and there'll be the sort of people also searched for type boxes and stuff. And you can often use that to search for info as well. 
how good are these? Remember, all of this originally happened in the Being Freelance community. You can watch the full video replays of these in the live Q&A section. It's a really nice place to hang out. Come find us, beingfreelance.com slash community. Noah said, what do you think makes the difference on a sales page? Is that that a simple answer? What makes a great sales page? It's a great question. What makes a real difference on a sales page? And this is one reason why, even though I may have like the same process for all of our clients, the end result is always very different. And I've worked with clients in like the same niches, you know, like so online marketing itself, I must have done like, I don't know how many sales pages, but not a single one of those pages would be the same is because what makes the most difference is what someone brings to the table in terms of story, in terms of experience, in terms of expertise, in terms of their unique approach. You may be teaching the same thing as a million other people, but there has to be something that sets you apart. The best copy cannot save a weak offer. Nice. Yeah. So often then if we're solo, you know, businesses, we're freelancers selling ourselves, what it might well be is is thinking like what makes us different? Why why us? Exactly. Right. Exactly. John says, is email marketing worth doing if you don't think you're a good writer or don't like writing? I mean, I think email marketing is great, personally. I think it's one of the most robust forms of marketing that works across. It transcends industries, audience types. Because if you think about it, somebody reading your email, you're in their inbox where they are all the time. They're reading your email. It's, it's very intimate. It's very immediate. Um, and they're going to spend longer with your content than, you know, quickly scrolling past you on Instagram or, or quickly seeing something on, on LinkedIn. So I do think email marketing is great. And, and building an email list, obviously, you you own that. You have access to that. You can email your email list at any time you like. Um, so as a marketing tactic, yes, I would say it's a strong strategy. But if you hate writing, <laughs> it's obviously going to maybe be quite difficult for you to... Um, consistently keep up with that as a channel could you try even even if you hate writing if there's something that you want to talk about in email that you think would make for an interesting email email newsletter could you try doing like a voice note there's some really great tools out there like um, otter ai i used to use with with when i used to work with kind of ceos who didn't like writing but you know had lots to say i would get them to just kind of talk into this um app and then it would transcribe it so maybe if you've got a good idea and you're quite happy talking, you could do that and then transcribe it and turn it into an email newsletter. Um, because I know sometimes just sitting down, trying to force yourself to write if you don't feel like a writer can be really difficult. But maybe there's a way around it that you can still send out some good content without that kind of painful process. Joe, do you have any tips for hiring other people to help on your business? Yes. <laughs> Lots of tips. So over the years, my husband and I have hired a lot of contractors and, you know, uh, fellow freelancers for different projects. We even currently have a, I call it our tiny but mighty team of, uh, you know, all of them are contractors. Uh, they're not, you know, we don't have payroll uh, employees. Uh, and that's how we've chosen to run our business. However, hiring always starts with 
you want to look at three things when you're hiring people for your business. One, what is it that you are absolutely not good at and that you need for your business? For instance, in our case, it was design. I am horrible at design. You do not want me. I, I know Canva is supposed to make it easy. I can mess up Canva too. So yeah. <laughs> so look at the tasks that you are absolutely not good at, but your business really needs them. The second thing you want to look at is what is it that you are good at, but it's something that someone else can easily do for you. And at the same time, it makes a difference to client experience, if you, especially if you're a service provider like, like we are. So example for us, that was editing. I'm good at editing. Do I want to do it? No. Can someone else do it? Yes. And they'll probably do it better. So that was like our first hire when everyone was telling us you need a VA, you know, we were like, no, we only have the budget for one person. And that is going to go to an editor because it made an impact on client experience. So you want to look at your hiring decisions. And the third thing is what I call like, you want to look at the customer experience. You want to look at cash flow increase. So will hiring improve customer experience or the increase cash flow? And that is where you want to kind of bring in someone. So that is how we kind of approach hiring in terms of who to hire. And then once you've hired them, or maybe during the in, actually during the interview process, first thing you want to make sure you have a very clear job description. This in fact should be in your job ad, you know, like exactly what would you want this person to know, do, and, you know, be an expert in for you and your business. And that means like, not just tasks, but also is the software that they need to know. Do you need them to be available at certain hours if you've got, if you, you know, in a business that requires that or it's a customer support role? So you have a very clear list of the role responsibilities and what are the expectations. And then you also want to start with a te paid test task. So please, yeah, always pay it and whatever's there, you know, right? Once you narrow them down, start a great way to do this is a paid test project and once that is done our process is we generally start with a three-month contract depending on so for instance if it's for say a va or social media manager even an editor or you know you want to start with a three-month project with someone who will be doing a single project for you like a designer you want to start with maybe a smaller thing like hey could you do this landing page for us and get an idea of their process how responsive they are all of those things you want to look at all of those things and you know before saying, yeah, this is someone we want on our team for a very long time. Paul says, do you have any tips on coming up with content ideas? Kind of a broad tip. One of the things that I tend to do is when I get email inquiries from potential new clients or um, even questions from existing clients, I always put all of those questions into an Excel, into like a Google sheet. And then when I'm trying to think of ideas of, you know, new blogs to write or LinkedIn posts or things like that, I go back to that spreadsheet because the way I think of it is if my ideal customers that I'm working with, my ideal clients are asking me those questions, there's probably others like them who are asking the same questions. And if I can answer those questions in my content, it could kind of help to attract the similar types of clients. So that's one thing definitely put on your existing clients, um, existing customers, what questions are they asking? Nice. Uh, yeah, that's good. Do you know, um, nobody's asked this, but I will. There's a thought, isn't there, around like repurposing your content, as in we always feel like we should create those new ideas, create new content and so on. What are your thoughts around like how best we can 
make the most of the stuff we already have? Yeah, I th- do you know what, Steve? I think that's a really interesting question and something that I personally, for my own marketing, I, I really want to focus on that this year because we think that when we put something out, everybody's reading it, everybody's absorbing it. And actually the percentage of people reading it is is really mm. tiny. And even the ones reading it, they would probably need to see it two or three times before it actually sinks in. Um, so I really personally want to move away from constantly coming up with new ideas and thinking about, you know, if I've written a really great email newsletter, can I take some snippets of that and turn it into Instagram content? Can I turn it into something for LinkedIn? How can I repurpose it? A blog post, um, you know, you could turn that into, again, Instagram or LinkedIn content because um, you can make a really nice carousel post, which is text-based. That format does really well on both of those channels. I think repurposing is, is going to be a really smart way of, of doing marketing going forwards and, and thinking about how you can take one idea or one concept and make it work across three or four different channels just by formatting it slightly differently. What I wouldn't do is, is kind of blindly just use the same content each channel has a slightly different audience a slightly different way people like to engage with the content so you do need to to make a tweak um so so kind of repurposing rather than just blanket putting the same copy out content out everywhere um but yeah i think repurposing is is a great marketing strategy if, if we've got time for this let's ask this one from angela who says a question for tom what is a backlink Backlinks is something that maybe some of us hear about and as if they're important and maybe we don't really know what the heck we're talking about and whether we should be bothered trying to get them. Mm, yeah, this is a really common one and actually very, very commonly misunderstood by um, people who aren't technical. So a backlink is simply a link that points from a website somewhere else to your website from your point of view. Um, so let's say I had a feature in an article on the Daily Telegraph or somewhere or the Guardian or whatever. And they said, this is Tom Garford. He does websites and they linked to my website. That is a backlink for me. So that link gets pointed to mine. And the value of a backlink is Google cares about backlinks. They they treat backlinks as kind of like votes for your website and signals of I guess, trust and authority. So if you've got lots of backlinks and then from really, really good sources, so BBC News or even just like beingfreelance.com, for example, I have a backlink on beingfreelance.com directory and it's got some value for me, which is nice. There is value in those links because Google scans all of the internet all the time, which is why it's called the web and Google spiders and they crawl everything and they connect everything up and they say, oh, this website is linking to this website. Therefore, it must think that this website is a good link to visit. Um, and it gives you some credit basically google says okay great they think they're good so we will trust that that they are good so the more links you have and the better quality they are the more likely you are to rank highly in search engines and getting more links is basically for freelancers is probably a case of doing a bit of pr so appearing on podcasts trying to get featured on guest blogs articles anywhere that you think a link might be a natural place for someone to put on their website is a good idea yeah and if you have been featured somewhere and they haven't linked to you drop them an email um Mm. so being freelance was listed on enterprise nation's website recently and they they didn't (laughs) they didn't actually link to the podcast and i was like no that would have been and then i thought hang on i'll ask and they did it um so yeah that's interesting that you said about the being freelance directory though because i was going to say does google like see like because we could presumably go and put ourselves on loads of directories right there's, there's yeah, yeah. 
Google counts different types of links in different ways. So um, a directory link is, um, no offense, Steve, but a directory no. link is slightly less valuable than being a featured article on the Guardian's website, for example, because it's a national, very highly regarded. Yeah, yeah, um, but, sorry, but what if you'd been a guest on the podcast, right? So same mm-hmm. website, being freelance.com. Yeah. Like, d- does it go, oh, that's a directory. Oh, that's a whole page about Tom. Yeah, it's pretty clever. So it takes all of the context around the page as well as just the link that it appears on. So if it's a page that's all about that person and the anchor text is Tom is a website designer and and the anchor text that you use, the link text that you use is the website designer bit. um, Those things matter. So, yeah, in theory, a page all about you with a link to your website is more valuable than being listed on a directory with lots of other people that use very similar layouts and stuff like that. So, yeah, different links have different value, give you different amounts of credit, basically. That's how to explain it. Yet another reason to appear in guest posts and podcasts and all things like that. Tom, thank you so much. There we go. A special bonus episode. I am recording new episodes of Being Freelance and I can't wait to share them. Make sure you're subscribed. If you've enjoyed this one in particular, though, normally at this point I'd say, please leave a review. Please share. I mean, please do. <laughs> but more importantly, come and say hi in the Being Freelance community because that's where you can watch the full video replays of these Q&As and also many more besides. That's at beingfreelance.com slash community. I'll see you very soon with new episodes of Being Freelance. I hope you're good. Have a great week. Being Freelance. Thank you.